morning. It's good to be with you again today to talk about our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have together to learn from your word. Thank you for revealing yourself in the Gospel of John. And we pray that these words would flourish in our lives. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Um, when I was a teenager, is it working anyway? Well, it doesn't sound, do y'all hear her? I don't think it's on the mic, so let me see if I can figure that out. That's what I did last time. And Hi, I'm really excited that Hattie's here. <laughs> Is this it? Is this closer? Okay. So um, when I was a teenager, I used to babysit sometimes for one of the pastors at my church. And I think they ended up having seven kids. At this time, though, um, I think they just had five. Um, and I, one night when I was babysitting, it stands out in my memory, um, I heard one of the best prayers I've ever heard. It was their um, youngest son at the time. His name is Daniel. He was between two and three. And his six-year-old sister, Hannah, is part of this scenario. She's in the room with me as I'm putting him to bed. And I've got him tucked in. The lights are out. She snuggled next to him. And... I can see their silhouettes from the light in the hallway. And I sat next to the bed, and I said, it's time to pray. And Daniel began, and he said, Dear God, thank you for the donut. (laughs) And there was a long pause after that. And so Hannah whispers to him, trying to coach him in what he's supposed to say. And he got irritated with her, saying, Hannah, I know what to say. So there's another pause. And he says, and thank you for the other donut. <laughs> so this is, um, to me, it's better than all the prayers in the Valley of Vision because <laughs> it displays a purity of heart. He's, he's a baby. And yet that, the donuts he had had, I, when I told his parents that night, he said, they said he had two donuts this morning. So that was in his two-year-old heart. Like, thank you, God. For this, um, and I love it because it's lacking in motives for a beautifully crafted prayer. He just said what was in his heart, not thinking about, oh yeah, my babysitter is going to tell my mom and dad. Um, so I can just I remember this like I can hear his voice and see his little face. He's a grown man now, like it was yesterday. Um, I mention this because there's truly no best prayer. Um, there's nothing that matches what we see in John 17 for purity of heart. Um, in this prayer, we have a view into the heart of Jesus. And when we look there, we can see many wonderful things. Um, there have been many sermons written about John 17 alone. Um, the Puritan preacher Thomas Manton wrote a sermon for every verse in John 17. So, I don't feel like I can say a lot (laughs) that's going to um, add to the corpus of things that have been said about John 17, but there are some things that stand out to me when I look at John 17, and so what I'm going to focus on, even though it talks a lot about, um, even though Jesus talks a lot about the disciples, 
what I see primarily when I look at John 17 is the glory of God and the love of God. Um, as you know, when we study the Bible, our very first question should not be, what does this say about me? Our first question should be, what does this tell me about God? In John 17, it's wonderful to hear Jesus praying for his disciples and for believers in the millennia to come. Jesus says, as I mentioned, a lot about his followers, but the chapter says a lot about his heart. And as I reflected on these words, it seemed to me that almost all the things that the apostles wrote in the letters to the churches point back to what we see about Jesus's character in this chapter. Um, it, the, the letters of the apostles affirm the glory of God and they affirm the love of God. So at the outset of John 17, we see Jesus's perfect understanding of God's perfect and providential timing. We also see the relationship between the son and his Holy father. We hear about the glory of the father and the son And we see the love between the Son and the Father, the love that Jesus has for his disciples and the love that he has for his church. We see Jesus acting as our mediator and our intercessor. John 17, as you know, is called by many the high priestly prayer because of Christ's intercession for the church. And we know that this work of his continues in heaven. Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what office does Jesus Christ execute as our Redeemer? And the answer to that is that he has the offices of a prophet, a priest, and a king, both in his estate here on earth and his humiliation where he had to put off his, the glory that he had in heaven. And, his ex, and he's still our prophet, high priest, and king, where he is exalted at the right hand of God. The Catechism further asks... How does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is that Christ executes the office of a priest and is once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. So consider the gift that the Holy Spirit has given us by providing us this unique prayer that John recorded. There's nothing else like it in scripture where we hear an extended prayer between the Father and The Son speaking to the Father. We know that Jesus talked to the Father continually, but here we get this long discourse. And consider how much the Father has given us in this gospel as a whole of John, where so much of it is dedicated to the work that that Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross. Um, Look back, consider... um, what we studied in John 12 a few weeks back. It was a turning point in the gospel because Jesus is going to Jerusalem. The Passover starting and he's heading into Jerusalem. And after that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus reached that moment where he said, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And we know that a voice came from heaven and people heard it. And the Lord says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So that whole week of Passover and even a little bit before, um, I think in chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, I think there's an allusion to the hour. 
we know that Jesus knows that it's time. Um, all John focuses on, all the focus that John places on the road to the cross is pretty unique because we've got the upper room discourses and then we've got the account of Jesus' death and resurrection. And because this prayer follows the upper room discourses, we know that there are less than 24 hours left in Jesus' earthly mission. So um, we also know he knows the kind of death he's going to die. He knew that he was going to be crucified on a cross. He knew that he was going to be bearing the weight of sin for all of human history. And we're never going to understand here what that is like because we're not God. And we just, we, we get caught up in our own sin and like, you know, it should weigh down on you. We should be convicted of our own sin, but we have no idea what it's like to bear everything for everyone. So when he speaks to his father, saying the hour has come, he knows what's going to happen. It's going to be bad. Um, he knew that he was about, and next week we'll see, he's going to be betrayed by Jesus, Judas. But Judas does not have power over Jesus. The hour of Christ's passion has come because it's the Father's appointed time. It's time for Jesus to lay his life down. And while men are agents in this plan, they are not the masters of time. It was God the Father who appointed the hour for Jesus to go to the cross. And Jesus empties himself, as Paul's letter to the Philippians tells us, by taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So every moment since Christ entered Jerusalem, it demonstrates his willingness to submit to that plan. So in this prayer in John 17, Jesus' first appeal to the Father is that his Father would glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. In the Old Testament, when um, the scripture speaks of glory, it uses a word that um, connotates weightiness as in presence and we know that the lord manifested his glory in the old testament and that glory was christ but here in the new testament that manifestation is physically in the presence of his son and the word glory means praise extol magnify honor to make glorious or to make renowned When Christ asked the Father to glorify the Son, he's not asking for God to pat him on the back like, you did a good job, thanks for doing your work. It's not that. His petition has a double meaning. One, that the glory of his love for the Father and for those he was sent to save would be revealed in the crucifixion. In that same scene from John 12 that I just alluded to where the voice comes from heaven, Jesus also says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So on the cross, Jesus is made renowned to the glory of God. What the Jews intended to be a shameful death is a manifestation of God's power and God's glory. The second meaning of Christ's petition for glory is to be restored to the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. So why would Jesus ask for something that seems like a foregone conclusion You might think, of course, the Father's going to give him his glory back. He's going to heaven. Uh, He's going to sit at the Father's right hand. We know that. But 
you see the humility of Christ in facing his passion. He's human. He's God. But in coming to dwell among us, he put off that heavenly splendor. And he's about to suffer as a human and taste the bitterest and most vile death that there ever was. And he needs the Father to bring him through that so that he can bring the glory to the Father and be restored to his heavenly glory. So in verse 2, we see that Jesus brings the Father glory by giving eternal life to all those that God has given him. And there's only one way that that eternal life is going to be granted, and that is through Jesus in his death and resurrection. And when we think about our salvation, especially it's Lent, we're approaching Easter, we do focus on the cross. Um, We think about how Jesus died for our sins. We also might think about how we've been spared from a justly deserved punishment And we may consider that when we die, we get to go to heaven and be with the Lord. And all these things are true. But consider verse 3, where Jesus talks about the nature of eternal life. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when we look into the heart of Christ here, the most marvelous thing in the entire universe is made plain. That the life that we're granted is not simply one of reconciliation, where our sins are no longer counted against us. Christ is showing us that we are meant for relationship with him and with the Father. So when you look in John 17, in addition to the, the fruits of that glory, the fruits of that love, we get the relationship. It's not just like, you're okay now, your sins are forgiven. It's, you're my daughter and I love you. In verse 4, Jesus says, He glorified the Father on earth, having accomplished the work the Father gave him. And it's interesting that he says this at this point, because it sounds like it's done. He hasn't died. Um, But the next request he makes implies the final task. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And as we know, there's only one way to get to that presence, and that was to go to the cross and the grave. As we study scripture, context is always important. So consider what we've studied in John so far. Everything in Jesus' ministry up to this point has been done in relative safety. We know that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, but they were not allowed to touch him because his hour hadn't come. But now the hour's come, and what's about to unfold, as we know, is excruciating, gruesome, sorrowful, and devastating for Jesus. Jesus knows the redemptive plan, but he still has to live it to to get to the Father and return to his former glory. So he's asking for that. In his specific prayer, I'm going to transition, because I... We can't talk about John 17 without talking about the fact that Jesus does pray for us. So in his specific prayer for his disciples, his intercession points back to the revelation of the Father. We are, Jesus says that the Father has given Christ's followers to him. And to them, Jesus has revealed the Father through his words. The very words that the Father gave him to give to the disciples. So Jesus says, 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus is made known and has brought glory through his disciples, but he knows that they will also face extreme circumstances after his death. And so he asks, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So the prayer for oneness here is not about um, being a part of a unified organization. Um, Some people today think that we're all supposed to be part of one church and that denominations are bad. I'm not going to get into that here. I'm not a theologian. Um, But that is not what Jesus means when he's talking about oneness. Oneness means remaining in relationship with the Father and the Son and being faithful to the mission of reconciliation that the disciples were given. Because consider, the disciples were entrusted with the gospel in a perilous world. They were going to be, um, they and many members of the early church were going to be persecuted. Many of them would be tortured and killed. And they, most of them, I would grant you, um, considered it an honor to be able to suffer for and die for the name of Christ. But Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that the hardships they were, they were going to face. And so that's the motive of his prayer for oneness, that even though these hard times come, keep them, Lord. Keep them connected to you and I. Keep them in the faith. And so Jesus concludes his prayer for believers who, who are going to be born in the ages to come. So here we see, painted with words, a picture of the Father and the Son's glory and the love between them. Of future believers, Jesus says that the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Just as Jesus prays for his disciples, he also prays that future believers will know the fellowship and the love of the Father and his beloved Son. He prays for those who came before us. Think about your grandparents. Well, I mean, we're talking about 2,000 years here, but think about the people who brought you to faith. He prays for you. He prays for your children, for those to come in the church. He's not praying for friendship or that we're all going to get along. He's praying over our adoption into the family of God so that we may pray as Jesus does. Righteous Father, Abba Father, this is the name that you can go to. You don't, Jesus doesn't need to say, Kay's got a request, Father. Kay can go to the Father with her requests. Um, The the things that Jesus is praying for, our membership into this family, that brings glory to God. Abraham Kuyper says that you must have been given in the Father to Christ in order that his glory may be manifest in you. So that... You have faith today is not a random thing. You were given to Jesus by the Father. 
and your adoption has, as his child was very intentional. That Jesus at the same time prays that we will all see his glory is not a commentary on his ego. He asks, that the, he asks for what the Father will give because it is the Father's will that we see Jesus as he is in all the splendor and the glory that the Father bestowed on him. It's important that we understand what Jesus is asking for the disciples and the church. Um, It's primarily Christ's desire to bring glory to the Father. Salvation is not his primary goal. It's secondary. Glory to the Father is the first thing, but he's going to do that by bringing about our salvation But he also wants, as I mentioned, believers to know and to live in the love of the Father. He wants us to share in the bounty of what he has with the Father. Glorious love, both now and then in all eternity. Eternal life is forever enjoying the love and beauty of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in perfect sinless relationship with them, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that life begins now before we die. You know, we know that in the upper room discourses, Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. And people are going to know that you're my followers by the love that you display for each other. So that Jesus prays in this manner before his death while he's still here is a model for us today of how to approach the throne of grace where we know that the father hears us. We also know that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us, but he has shown us that we can go directly to the Father to ask for his help and to pray that his will will be done. And one of the greatest gifts of this prayer is, I think, a revelation of that relationship that Christ made possible for us to be daughters of God. Kuiper also says that, The Christ is your mediator, and there can be no mediator save for the one purpose of causing you to approach God. To be near to God with a child's confidence. To feel yourself close by God here on earth. To abide in the nearness of God through faith. And once after your death, to serve God eternally in the Father house above. Just as Jesus put his trust in the love of the Father, we should also follow that same example and persevere in prayer that the Father's glory would be revealed in our lives and that we would have fellowship with God and with each other here and now in love. Um, Andrew Murray says that we prove the value we attach to things by the time that we devote to them. And when I examine my own life, especially as I was preparing for this lecture, I see that I value many other things more than the glory of God. Like, when am I going to get new windows in my house? You know, those kinds of things preoccupy my mind. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the curtains I want to get when I get new windows in my house. You know, I'm, I'm human, but at the same time, my heart, eh, it's not that crazy about the things of the Lord sometimes. Um, I see more value in other things than in the glory of God and fellowship with him. But I don't want to be somebody whose love grows cold, especially as I get older. I don't want to look back on this period of my life and wish that I had been more prayerful and that I had loved my brothers and sisters better. Um, 
I, I'm saying this, I'm sharing this example just because I think we all need help in letting go of some of the things that are temporal here and, and not, not feeling like we have to get our act together before we go to the Lord in prayer. Of course, we need to confess our sin. But you can pray anywhere. You can pray while you're changing that diaper. You can change while you can pray while you're in the shower. You can pray while you're washing the dishes. It does not have to be formal. Think about your, I don't, you know, this can become a touchy subject for some people if you had a bad dad. I had a great dad. He was, can be very strict and harsh at times. But um, his consistent discipline, I would say, taught me the proper fear of God. And one of the issues I had with God as a young adult was that I felt like I couldn't be good enough. And this, my dad was always setting the bar really high, like, that's not good enough. And it was, it was crushing to me. And I really projected that on the father. But once I was able to deal with that and let go of that and not say, um, the father is like Pat Saunders, <laughs> And the father's the father, sinless, and he loves me, and he has grace for me. When I was able to let go of that, um, I could—I didn't feel like I had to get right in order to come to the Lord. I could be honest with the Lord about where I was. And so I'm just sharing all this because I think as a body, continuing in prayer until the Lord comes is one of the most important things we can do. Not to the neglect of mission, but you have to pray so that mission can be done well. And Jesus, he's about to do the biggest thing he's ever done. And that's, even my description of it is, sounds like it's diminishing the cross. But you know what I mean. He's about to do something glorious, and he's not going to do it without asking for the Father's help. So whatever we're doing in our work and, and the raising of the kids and submitting to your husbands, ask God for help. Um, and as I was preparing for this and thinking about the prayer in John 17, it made me think a lot about what Paul has to say about Christ in Romans. It made me think a lot about Hebrews in particular and how all these things are affirmations about the work of Christ, including the prayer that he prayed for the church. So I want to end with a part of a letter, and this is going to be our prayer too. Um, that it's from Ephesians. I think it's chapter, it's chapter one because I want to end here because it points back to the many things that Jesus prayed in John 17 before his necessary death, which brought glory to the father and demonstrated love for the father and love for us. So let's end here with this prayer. I'm going to be reading a long piece of scripture. I'll pray for the luncheon and we'll be done. Okay, so let's pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, 
which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him we also, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we believed in him. We are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, we thank you that we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. And we pray that you would make your works known and your love known through us and through this church. Father, we thank you for this time, for this place. And Lord, I pray for the fellowship um, that's about to commence. May brotherly love continue as we go to this feast. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.